I have loved getting to dive into Luke with you, and I thank you for being here tonight again. We do have some handouts down here at the front. If anybody needs them, you're welcome to come get them. Even while I'm talking, I'll assume you're not coming up here to, you know, go after me. I'll just know you're getting a handout, and so it's good to see you here tonight. We're coming to the passage where the Lord Jesus has come out of the wilderness after his time of temptation and testing uh, by the devil, and we come to Luke 4.14, which is where we will begin tonight. Luke 4.14. Gospel of Luke chapter four, beginning with verse 14. I'm gonna begin reading there and we're gonna read a part and then uh, catch up with the rest of it later. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that when Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Lord, would you remind us of the good news of Jesus tonight? Would you remind us of freedom for the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and good news for the poor, poor in resources, poor in spirit, poor in any way that we could find or, or seek and, and, and know. So Lord, would you remind us of the good news of Jesus? Would you challenge us with what it means to yield to him and to know him and to love him. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. We see that word glorified used. If you grew up in church, you're probably used to hearing the word glory at different points. If you grew up in a country church, you might be used to having a little bit more syllables than maybe regular. You go from glory to glory or something like that, you know. But, but glory is a word that we use a lot. We don't always break down a great deal. One of the things that I, I got a chance to hear a few years ago that I, I was really blessed by, and I forget which pastor said it, but don't credit it to me, uh, was yielding back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. And I love this in the way of shaping what we see here in this passage tonight. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 uh, says this. The apostle Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The pastor, which I heard break down this verse, did a great job of, of bringing out the fact that in the uh, Jewish world of Jesus' day and the hope of the Old Testament for what was being set forward, 
The word that constantly was driven back in the minds of Jewish people to call them back to is they're awaiting for the great light that was to come. The light of the Messiah, the light of the Savior, the light of their hope of deliverance. And so when they thought about the hope of the Messiah coming, light was often a word that was used to compare with that. When you come to John's gospel, you see that especially that he uses that word over and over again, hearkening to that great truth of who Jesus was going to be. And so for the people in that day who were from a Jewish background, they were awaiting the light that was to come. Now, many of you know that Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Jesus walked among the people that we read uh, today, about three to 400 years before that, he had swept through much of the known Western world and conquered much of what was the known world at that time. And for that reason, or, or because of that, much of the world spoke Greek as at least a second language and Greek culture inundated from the coast of Spain all the way to the plateau of India. And so for the Greek culture, it became very prominent that people began to know who people like Plato and Socrates and others were. And the Greeks chased after knowledge. When Paul spoke to the Greeks on uh, the Areopagus in, in uh, Acts 17 at Mars Hill, and he's speaking to them, it's really knowledge that they're trying to get to. And so for reaching a Greek person, they had to find out how God's knowledge had been made evident, made manifest in Jesus. And then you come to the Roman the Roman who had been a part of that conquering people of the day. And for the Roman, they were chasing something else. It wasn't light. It wasn't knowledge. It was glory. It was glory. For the Roman soldiers, for the Roman gladiators, for the Roman citizens, and for the Roman uh, politicians, there was this idea that fame and glory and renown was the ultimate goal of their life. And for a Roman, there was no higher place to be than glory. And interestingly enough, we see the fulfillment of all those concepts so beautifully in the Bible. And it's really summarized here in such a wonderful way. Paul speaking into all these cultures at once says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so when the Bible speaks about the fact that glory is due to Jesus Christ, that's a reminder to us that our constant need is to have our eyes turned away from ourselves and towards the Lord Jesus. Glory is a drawing of attention to someone or something, either based on something they've done or who they are. Glory is acclaim and renown and fame and wonder and attention all rolled into one. And we come to the passage today where as Jesus has begun his ministry, he's exited the wilderness and for a time there is nothing but renown and glory uh, that comes to the Lord Jesus in his ministry. Now I need to go ahead and deal with the pictures now or I'll forget, I'm real bad about this. So let me take you into the, the world, the, the geography of Jesus' day here just a little bit. Here is uh, as looking down on many of the areas of, of Galilee that we talk about tonight, if you were to be in a high area and sort of do a panoramic view, maybe that takes you into some of the region uh, surrounding the Sea of Galilee, we sort of always assume Jesus was walking through the desert, but everywhere in Israel is not like that. It's actually part of that fertile crescent. And so as you look down, you can kind of get a picture in what some of these areas looked like. This is actually a synagogue, uh, what's left of a synagogue in Magdala. Now, we're never told in the Gospels that Jesus went to Magdala, but we have a good feeling that he did. You know why? Because a lady named Mary Magdalene uh, came to follow him, and most believe her name represented the fact that 
uh, she came from that region. And so the synagogues, most of the ones that are left in Galilee have been built on top of previous foundations. They're later than this one, but this floor, uh, most believe actually dates back to the time of Christ. And so if he was ever in the synagogue in Magdala, it's possible that he stood uh, in this vicinity. Likewise, here's uh, another synagogue in another place called Gamla, a place that's also in Galilee. We don't know for sure if Jesus was there or not, but it would make sense that he could have. As Jesus stood up to speak, ironically, he didn't have a suit or a tie on. And as he stood up to speak, he didn't stand up and keep speaking. He sat down, that that was the normal posture uh, for them to speak. He stood to read the scroll and then sat down to, in order to be able to instruct. This gives a, a window of perhaps what that looked like uh, for the scroll and the other elements that would be there uh, for those in the synagogue who were ministering, who were leading in that way. Now. As Jesus begins to give the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and he speaks about freedom for the oppressed and the captives and all of that, we have to remember that for the Jewish people, their hope was not only that in a spiritual sense, they almost completely were dominated by their hope of saying delivery from the Roman people, that we want to escape the Roman oppressors who are in, uh, in our area. These are some coins that were actually from the time period just after the Jewish revolt in the, in the early 70s or 70 AD. I don't know if you can see this, but the coin actually has engraved on it, Judea Capta. You know what that means? That means the capture of the Jews. And so the coins that people in that region would be using celebrated the fact that the Jews had been captured. Imagine living in a world where the very money you used reminded you of the fact that you were oppressed. And so for the people to hear the language that Jesus uses today, it's gonna to be hard for them to understand it correctly in an initial sense. Uh, Jesus is even going to say some things to them that makes them want to walk out and throw him off the side of a mountain. That's, I don't know how bad your worst sermon went, Brandon, but I've not had that happen to me yet. <laughs> Come close, but not quite that point. There are some who believe this was the mountain that perhaps that could have happened on. Uh, this is called the, uh, the Mount of Precipitation, which I don't know how we get from precipitation uh, to Jesus being thrown off. I, I don't know the language there well enough, but, uh, but this is the mount where perhaps that happened. And if you also would like to see a view of Capernaum as it exists today uh, from right there on the side of the Sea of Galilee, that's a window into what that looks like. Here's the remainder of the synagogue and then a home that they say Peter lived in that was right next door to the synagogue. And uh, you'll have to decide on your own if that's true or not, if you ever go. But you can see here an example of the first century remnants of where this synagogue was in the time when Jesus perhaps came through and then what was built on top of that after it was destroyed. And so most of what's there doesn't reach all the way back uh, to, uh, to Jesus' time, but, uh, but the first century parts, of, a part of it uh, is there. The ground that you walk on, so to speak, may still be the same. So now you can feel like you've had your geography lesson and your archaeology lesson and we can dive into the text. Maybe that sometimes a visual helps me wrap my brain around it. Now for tonight as well, I also would say I didn't give you fill in the blank and I'll have to apologize. I'd already sent it to the printer and decided I didn't want to make Green Street have to pay for not only the first printing but the second printing. And so you don't have to fill in any blanks. You can just relax. If I see you taking a nap, I'll know it's my fault. You know, I didn't give you something to do and it's okay. And... Um, but we come through a few things tonight, and I want to just mention several things about this passage. We're going to read a little further past where we've gone already, Lord willing, if time allows. Uh, but we come to this passage where Jesus goes back home to Nazareth, and he's going to give 
a, a lesson in the, in, the, in the church that day, a sermon, if you will. He's going to speak and, and be able to read. And, and in that, it's going to be the only interaction that we're ever told about that Jesus has in Nazareth after this time. Uh, interestingly enough, we don't ever read explicitly that Jesus returns to Nazareth after this. I think a warning for, for all of us to say that often uh, God extends his truth, but there's a time for where we can receive that, and often he leaves us to our own devices if we're not willing to accept that. And so Jesus speaks today in Nazareth, and for all we know, it's his only sermon there during his adult ministry. And so if you got your Bible still open, you read this again in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The first thing that I would say to you tonight is the first thing that Jesus said in his ministry in terms of from the best chronology we can have as he begins his ministry, he wanted folks to understand this truth and I would say for us it's very important as well. Number one, the message of Jesus is good news. Aren't you thankful? Have you ever met a Christian who seemed like the, the, the message of Jesus just wasn't good news to them? Have you ever had times in your life where you really have, have kind of wondered, boy, if if Jesus is like this person or if Jesus is like me right now or if, 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 you know, I don't know that I can have much hope, aren't you thankful that the message of Jesus is good news? Amen. It's about freedom to captives, sight for the blind, and the favor of the Lord. None of that we deserve but because Jesus has, has done that for us. I, I love the song we sang to open that up. Parker and Bryant don't know that's one of my favorite songs, but I believe the lady's name is Charity Bancroft who wrote that. She was 18 years old when she wrote that song. 18. That's what you could do when there was no video games and TV. People just graduated right to, you know, I'm just, just you know, we, we sometimes assume it takes a long time for people to understand the depths of God's grace in that way. But I just love that song, uh, that, that Jesus is the great source of hope for us. It's about freedom to captives, sight for the blind, and the favor of the Lord. Now, you might have a note in your Bible that Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 61. He's quite literally reading from the scroll that more than likely had the entire book of Isaiah uh, as a part of it. And he's reading this, uh, whether he chose this passage or whether it was the passage to come that day in its order, we don't know for sure, but it obviously is orchestrated by the Lord that he would read this passage uh, as he stood up and as he, he read. And he came and to sit down. He rolled it up and gave it to the attendant and sat down, verse 20, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's also an incredible thing to say. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That the words that were given in Isaiah 61, still in the midst of a lot of the suffering servant language in Isaiah that traces all the way back to chapters like Isaiah 53 and otherwise, speaking about the Messiah to come, that Isaiah 61, still speaking in that way, the spirit of the Lord is, is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to bring, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that Jesus begins his ministry by saying, what is fulfilled is that I've come to deliver those who are in bondage, I've come to set free those who are captive, I've come to give sight to those who are blind, and this is a message of hope for all people. 
And he was going to do that quite literally. He was going to give people who were blind their sight back. But that's not all he was going to do, was it? Because as Pastor Brandon mentioned in his sermon recently with Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that Satan has blinded the minds and the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot believe the gospel or will not receive the gospel and hear it the way that they should, that that we recognize Jesus had to give sight to the blind in order for us to be able to trust in Christ, that that's the action of Jesus in our heart of opening our eyes to the message of the gospel. And so Jesus declares that about himself says it's fulfilled in him and then sits down. Now in a Baptist church, if you said something like that at the end of the passage you read, they'd go ahead and run you out on a rail right then. But they didn't do that. From the language, it seems that they're just impressed enough with what he's saying and with his reputation. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And they started to have that this boy never talked very much when he lived around here, did he? Isn't this the one that used to, you know, help him in the shop? We never knew he could speak like this and, and do this and do that. Jesus went back to his hometown. Imagine what those people thought they knew about Jesus. Isn't it amazing God had Jesus wait 30 years before beginning his adult ministry? What in the world were those 30 years like except for a lot of patience for the Lord Jesus? to hold off and to say it's not time yet, it's not time yet. But imagine all those people thought they knew. I've had the opportunity to get voted on for for working in a church a number of times, only two churches, but had several roles in my previous church. I'd kind of grown up in the last one. The first vote that I got didn't get as high as I wanted. And I remember going home and trying to think about whether the Lord was calling me to accept that. I remember my grandfather who's with the Lord now giving me a call. I said, well, I don't know, Papa. This is the number I got. I was kind of hoping for this number. He said, Jonathan, don't you realize those people know you and they still voted for you. And so you can't, (laughs) those people have watched you be a kid and be a teenager and be a college student. And if you got that high a vote, you ought to take it. And he was right. The, The highest vote I ever got was in this church where nobody knows me yet. And so that's just, you know, that's the way it is. Jesus went home and everybody thought they knew something about him. They thought they understood there was this familiarity about him that was really troubling in what it did to them spiritually. But he comes with a very opening salvo to say that the message that that he's giving, the message that he would ultimately begin his ministry with is one of good news, freedom, sight, and favor of the Lord. And the second thing that I've got for you here, Jesus the suffering servant fulfills the role of the great prophet who was to come, Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy we see that great hope of the prophet. John the Baptist came to be a prophet to make the way for the prophet who was to come. You remember the book of Hebrews that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king? He's fulfilled all those roles. And someday he was gonna fulfill the entire passage. If you got your, um, your Bible still open and you put your thumb or a marker or your paper in Luke 4, we'll be back there in just a moment. Do you wanna flip over to Isaiah chapter 61? Maybe you trust me to read it correctly, but if you want to turn there with me, you can too, whichever you like. Isaiah chapter 61, the verse that Jesus quotes is the very beginning of the chapter. The chapter numbers weren't there in Jesus' day in the same way, but... um, But you come to Isaiah 61, and I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to read verse 2, and you might notice something different. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here's where Jesus stopped. But if he had kept going, even mid-verse, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, Jesus sat down mid-sentence in Isaiah 61 and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Why did he stop? Because it wasn't the day yet where his vengeance was coming. We've been learning about that on Sunday mornings, hadn't we? There's coming a time where Jesus' vengeance, God's vengeance is gonna be taken out on the world, but it was not yet at this moment. And so Jesus said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, And he said, today this has been fulfilled. And so Jesus, the suffering servant, fulfills the role of the great prophet who was to come. Interestingly enough, Luke only uses the word fulfill twice in his gospel. One time is with the men on the road to Emmaus where Jesus is telling them that all that was in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled through the Messiah. And so at the end of of the narrative about Jesus, the last chapter, and then the other time is here where it's given uh, about the Lord Jesus fulfilling what was spoken of ahead of time uh, for him. This has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now for a lot of preachers, they'd have been satisfied with that. I think I might have too and said, well, I better quit while I'm ahead. But Jesus has a truth that he needs to give the people. So let's continue reading here, verse 23. And Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow." And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus begins to speak to them and to challenge them in the familiarity that they think they have, what they think they know about Jesus and the spectacle that they want to see because they've heard what's happened elsewhere and they want to get to see it with their own eyes. And not only that, I think they probably wanted to take credit for it a little bit, didn't they? Say, well, he's from our town, you know. This fellow who's come, you know, Jesus, have you heard about him? We saw him do some wonderful things. You know, he's actually, he, he grew up with my son. They played, they played baseball together, you know, this, that kind of thing. And they wanted to kind of lay claim perhaps on who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so there was this familiarity that had not made them spiritually hungry, but it had made them kind of curious to say, well, what will we see him do and, and where is that going to go? And their hearts were hard in the midst of that. The third thing that I have for you here is we have to be really careful how we deal with spiritual familiarity. When we think we're close, we're often far away. And how we take a hard word tells us a lot. How we take a hard word tells us a lot. I find sometimes where I think I'm, uh, you know, just in in the best shape, that's the time where the Lord has to humble me. Uh, The the moments where I just, you know, start feeling really good about myself, uh, that that's the moment that the Lord has to work in my heart to bring me back down. Remember John the Baptist's words, he must increase and I must decrease. And in that, um, the people who are in this town are going to have to decrease, and most of them aren't willing to do that. 
Jesus begins to speak to them. And remember, he's come out of a passage that we can't help but be reminded not only of the spiritual truth that's there, but that Jesus has a heart for the poor. And Jesus has a heart for the captive. Jesus has a heart for the prisoner. Jesus has a heart for the blind, those who have a special need in their life. And all of this is a reminder that kind of comes through, spills through in that passage, and Jesus is even giving that. And and so you get the heart of Jesus coming out uh, in that way. And he begins to speak about other folks who were perhaps poor, or in one case, a widow, that God's grace came to. And he begins to say to them, remember so many years ago in those Bible stories that you're all disconnected enough from that you don't feel a personal obligation to or guilt about why Elijah and Elisha ended up not doing as much ministry in Israel. But do you remember that in Elijah's day, there were so many hard-hearted people in Israel that God sent him outside of Israel in order to minister to somebody, a widow in just a forgotten place in Zarephath. Do you remember that Elisha had so many opportunities to perform miracles, but by and large, the ones who received that were often outside of the fold of Israel? He references Naaman, the Syrian. And you know the people, they didn't, well, I don't, I don't like him talking about that. I don't have a heart for people who are outside my own synagogue here and outside my own town. Jesus, tell us what you're going to do for us. Why are you trying to say that God was preferring them? How dare you say that God preferred to go outside of the nation of Israel in order to do work? But we see the same rejection that later on would happen in the book of Acts even happen here. We have to be careful how we deal with spiritual familiarity. For where you sit tonight, and for me where I stand here, is there any way that we assume we're early on good terms with the Lord, but we have to really take a hard look at that and say, God, am I, am I really walking with you the way that I should? Father, would you say what I think I would say about myself? You know, we all fall short and we all have areas of need of forgiveness, but Lord, is there a a hard-hearted area of my life that needs to get resolved? Jesus presents that hard word to the people, and like I said, sometimes you can tell the temperature of your own heart by how you take a hard word. And if you've never drug the preacher out to the side of a hill, you're doing better than the people at Nazareth did. Remember, Jesus said for the people in his hometown, it was going to be more difficult in the day of judgment for them than it was Sodom and Gomorrah. The hard-heartedness to drag the Lord Jesus after, after thinking so well of him early on, take him to the top of a hill. And amazingly, verse 30, one of the things that I'd love to hear a lecture on when I get to heaven is exactly what happened here. It's just quickly summarized, but passing through their midst, he went away. God worked in some way, I believe, to allow the Lord Jesus to just walk right through everybody, and that was it. That through some way there was enough deliverance. Uh, Satan was trying to get Jesus to go ahead and commit himself to be delivered when there was no problem and and God was going to protect him. But then we see in the very next passage the fact that God actually did give protection without Jesus going after it. uh, That his protection was there. Now let's continue reading verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done no harm. 
And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Number four, Jesus carried not only the knowledge about God to communicate, but the authority to communicate in power. They had gotten to hear so many teachers of the law, perhaps, who would give. You ever been to hear somebody speak who's really, really intelligent? Obviously not tonight, but some other time. Somebody who's really intelligent. Sometimes the more intelligent someone is, the less certain they get about whatever they're saying. And so when you start listening to them speak, they'll say, well, some people think this and some other people think that, and we don't know exactly what it is. We have this kind of wishy-washy thing sometimes that intelligence can do to us. Imagine what it was like for them who perhaps were used to kind of that passive teaching in some way to have the person who strung the stars in the heavens presenting the truth to them. Imagine what it was like for them to hear the gospel, not only from the one who wrote it, but the one who himself was the word. Could there be any more authority than hearing the Lord Jesus present truth? He never had to get an angry email from somebody that said, you messed up the theology here and what you said, I don't think you quite got it. The authority that he had and the authority that he delivered with was attractive and it was, uh, it was contagious to the people who were there. Who is this that he speaks with this kind of authority? Uh, I've loved what uh, Brandon said on Sunday with uh, Satan being bound, you know, talking about that in the millennial uh, time of of Christ and this idea of the binding of Satan. And I've had a few times since he shared that to say, boy, if Satan's bound, he must be bound to me, you know, that kind of same deal. And one of the things that's interesting, when we read the Old Testament, we never read of the casting out of any demon throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Do you realize that? I do believe there is a heightened sense of demonic activity and Satan going after not only the Lord Jesus but the people of Israel during the time where his earthly ministry was taking place. And so there was, I believe, this great heightening during that three-year period where sometimes when you're reading the Gospels, it seems like everywhere Jesus goes, there's just demons and demons and demons. And so Jesus encountering this young man who simply calls the Spirit out of him. Isn't it amazing the demons know more about who Jesus is throughout the Gospels than the people who are there? They can always give a good working definition of who Jesus is, and sometimes the disciples can't even do that. But as the demon starts to cry out, Jesus silences him and calls him out. And we see that the authority that Jesus has is something that fills the people with wonder. Now, you and I don't have the authority of Jesus Christ in the sense we cannot speak in exactly the same way he can, being himself the word of God, the author of scripture, the perfect definition and fulfillment of grace and truth, as John says. We are not there, but aren't you thankful that because of the authority of God's written word given to us, we don't have to be wishy-washy people who give a halfway, loosely-based gospel. We can speak with authority because Jesus Christ himself has authority. Aren't you thankful for that? And so we can have hope when we pray for people to trust in Jesus because the word of God itself has power. It's living and sharper than any two-edged sword. If it had been written in our day, they would have come up with some other, you know, highest of weaponry to say that's what the word of God is. And so the authority of Christ translates even to those who follow him to be able to point back to him and what God has given us in his word. 
Number five, for the sake of time, Luke and Acts, of course Luke wrote both of those, deal especially with the subject of the gospel presented to the Jewish people in their synagogues, followed by their rejection, and then a turning to the wider Gentile world. You know, this passage is kind of one cohesive whole in some ways, uh, but, but looking back even to what Jesus read in Isaiah, that that ultimately was gonna be fulfilled by having a wider net than just the Jewish people. It was never truly ultimate, ultimately only restricted to the Jewish people, but in the New Testament especially, we have this jumping forward to say, this message is not simply just for those who are in you know, this one region, it's for all. And so if you were to read in Acts chapter 13, you'd see Paul and Barnabas who say, look, we've tried, we've given you the truth, we've told you the reality of who Jesus is and what we, we our people did to him, but since you won't believe, we're going to the Gentiles. And we're going there. And, and that's gonna be the way that it's going to go. And so Luke, perhaps reaching back to that, we don't know all the chronology of when he wrote his gospel versus the book of Acts, but there's this common tie between you know, the two that, that throughout Jesus's ministry, he is giving the truth to those who should most let readily receive it based on what they know. And unfortunately, because of their familiarity and perhaps their coldness that that brought, they're the quickest ones to reject it and to turn away. And so then number six, the last question for us tonight. I think with any passage that we ever look at, for anybody who ever teaches, for any time we ever read the scripture, one of the most important questions for us is, why does this matter? It obviously matters in terms of who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done, but it matters for us as well because we don't wanna be seen in the same light as those in Nazareth, do we? We can be quick to look and to say, boy, I can't believe those people did that. And yet in our own life, how easy is it to just ignore the call of God, the tug of the Lord in our hearts? How easy is it to become cold in certain areas or to perhaps say, well, you know, I, I'm just gonna do my own way in this area or that area. How then will we in our familiarity hear the Lord Jesus in our daily life. It's been wonderful to get a chance to take part in what is going on here and, and what's going on at Park Place, getting a chance to see 25 kids who never walked in that church before come in that church before. Often they're from folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds and otherwise, and I just get reminded, Jesus has a heart for the poor. Jesus is about deliverance to those who are chained. Sometimes we get so insulated and we can say, well, we just want things to always be just as they are. We don't consciously think that, but if we're not careful, we won't have the heart of Jesus to say, you know what? The reason he came and the reason his truth comes down to us is for freedom from captivity, is for sight to the blind and declare the favor of the Lord. And so for each of us, that'd be my encouragement. Jimmy Carter, who is, was our only Southern Baptist U.S. president, if I'm remembering right, he's no longer Southern Baptist, but he was in the 70s. He told an illustration some years ago about what it was like to be in a Sunday school classroom. He was in a group of older men, and they'd say, you know what, this Thanksgiving we ought to take up a collection for a needy family that's in our community. And they all said, that's a great idea. Then they looked around and they asked the question, who of you knows a needy family in here? And there were crickets. The problem wasn't the willpower, is that they weren't connected enough to the people that were around them to know who was in need. Can I remind you, the gospel is good news. 
It's not a moral program we're trying to get people to take part in and somehow yield into a situation where we say, boy, they finally look and dress and act more like us or whatever it might be. No, the gospel's good news that people desperately need. So can we remember that it's hopeful? May we be drawn into Jesus' heart and hear his word as only he would give it tonight. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is, we often sing so much. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I was blind, but now I see. Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus fulfilled not only the prophecy of the Old Testament, but he fulfilled the great hope, not only with his authority, but he fulfilled the great truth that the gospel's good news for the blind, for the captive, for the downtrodden, for the poor, and for those of us who need deliverance, and we need hope, and we need strength, and we need comfort. Father, we're thankful that your grace finds us and goes with us. So Lord, however you would use your word tonight, may you make us thankful for the Lord Jesus. May you draw us into the greatness of who he is and what it means to have his heart. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.